0: He emptied himself. I'm going to come out here. I kind of feel like I have walls. <laughs> he emptied himself. What does that mean? Now, it depends on which translation you have of Philippians, but uh, it might say he um, let go of, but Christ emptied himself. I like that particular translation here in Philippians chapter 2. Letting go... Of all his godliness, he's part of the Holy Trinity. He's eternally part of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally coexistent. And the Son lets go of that eternal holiness long enough to become man. And then when Paul talks about this, and describes this, he begins in verse 5, and he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So keep that in mind, and that word relationships, which we'll come back to in a moment. Because this passage teaches us many things, but, but on, on a very basic and important level, it's uh, the incarnation. This is Christmas. We usually think of Luke chapter 2, rightly so, as the Christmas passage. Also, in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark, Wait, Matthew, Matthew chapter two, telling us the story of the people and the places that were involved in the birth of Jesus, but the meaning behind it is Philippians two, the incarnation. Who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing. That's where that phrase "empty Himself" comes in. Okay, in some translations. Made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Big word, the incarnation, which simply means God took on flesh. God became man. And if that didn't happen, we'd have no hope. If that didn't happen, we can all make up our own way to God, which is, a lot of, which is what a lot of the world is doing, trying to figure out on their own how we earn our way to God, achieve our way to God. Do whatever we have to do to appease God or just give up on it and say there is no God. And certainly many have gone that path as well. But the message of Jesus is that God took on flesh. God became one of us. There was a song in I think the 1990s that that had that title, one of us. And has asked the question, what if God was one of us? It's a great song. It it really kind of, I don't know what the intent of the author of that song and the writer, but it, it really brought across the point, what if God was one of us? And the good news is that He was and He is. His name is Jesus, the incarnation. So that's the most important part of the meaning, or the first part I should say. And then secondly, there is the humiliation. Not only did He take on flesh, giving up eternal holiness that we can hardly even describe. John in Revelation does the best he can to to look at the vision that God gave of him, of of what heaven is, and he he put it in the terms that he could. You know, gold and brightness and just creatures beyond description, and he, he gave it some language, but it's insufficient to describe the indescribable. But he, it's not just that he left that. If I were to write a story just in my human mind, and I didn't know anything about the gospel of Jesus, and I would have said, you know what? There's got to be a God out there somewhere. This, this, this universe is so big. This world is so complex. There, there's got to be some designer behind it. And, you know, so, so if God were to become man, how would I make it up? Well, let's give him... A really nice birthplace. Wait, Luke 2 says manger in a in a barn. No, that's not a nice birthplace. Oh, it's cute at Christmas time. We put up our little sets in the living room and put them all around the house and it looks great. Giovanni wasn't born in a barn, I hope. No, I didn't think so. Okay. Anybody here born in a barn? Okay. Anyone would like to be, choose that sign up. Who would like to be, you know, right next to the cattle and the, and the horses and the sheep, whatever else might be out there? Of course not. Neither did Mary and Joseph, and yet Jesus came and humiliated himself to that level. And he's also born into, instead of advantage, that is, the best nation in the world, maybe I would have said, okay, Jesus, if you're going to be born at that time or any time, then you should be born into the royalty of the most powerful nation in the world so you can become leader, you know, right away. Well, that was quite the opposite. He was born to, to, to the Jews, a very poor nation that was under the, under the boot of the Roman Empire, basically, under oppression by the Romans, and they had very little freedom, and so that's where he was born into. And, okay, if you have to be born there, Jesus, then why don't you... At least go to a good family within the Jewish, like like good in the sense of rich. No, they weren't rich. Mary and Joseph were poor. And we see that when they go to the temple for his own act of dedication of a baby, basically, for, for circumcision, when they offered a sacrifice of birds. That was what poor people gave according to the law of Moses when they couldn't afford a more expensive animal for sacrifice. So they were, he's born to a poor nation and a poor family in a, in a poor, humble setting in a, in a barn. Oh, wow, this is not going well. God, why did you send them like this? See, this is part of the humiliation. But in terms of that, it gets worse. So, in spite of all the wonderful things he did, of the teaching that he gave, and the miracles that he performed, He goes willingly and dies a criminal's death. Crucifixion is one of the most horrific devices of torture and pain and death ever devised by the evil hearts within mankind. The Romans did it very intentionally to to make everyone fearful of them, and it worked pretty well. If you fall if you don't fall in line with what the Romans tell you to do and want you to do, then okay, you're an insurrectionist, put them up on the cross. And it was supposed to be a slow and painful death and so and they would make it very public. They would line the roads in the main parts of the towns throughout the empire with crosses. Some, there's some stories that, Sometimes during after a conquest or if there was an uprising against the Romans, they would, there was hundreds of people at one time that were hanging there. See, we think of Jesus on the cross and we kind of romanticize it. Oh, wasn't that beautiful and wonderful? No, it wasn't. What it accomplished for us in faith was beautiful, but the, the horror of that torturous death. So now here, think about this. Now you have Jesus in, in the Godhead going from that beautiful eternal existence and then being contained in a human being. And then that human being was, was poor and his nation was poor and he's born in a barn. And then he goes on in spite of all his wonderful miracles and teaching and, and the love he expressed, he gets killed in the worst possible way. This is the extreme humiliation of the cross. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That word almost seems too, too soft to describe what he went through. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the third part of it then is glorification. God therefore exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess to the, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it goes from glory to humility and suffering and then back to glory. Back to glory because of what he did. It's the most glorious It's the most glorious act ever done by anyone, and that is what God honored him for eternally and continues to honor him for, and we are honored. Now, there's more to this passage because this story isn't just so we can sit back and be a spectator and say, wow, look at what Jesus did. Thank you, Jesus. Let's give Jesus a big round of applause. And and don't get me wrong, we we should praise him. And every every tongue should confess that he is Lord. But it isn't just what he did outside of us, somewhere else. It's what he can and will do in you. When you believe that this is true and that it's true for you, that can begin to transform your life. But he left it up to you. He's not going to force himself on you. Let's go back to that first verse, in your relationships with one another. So that was the the setup for what Paul just described about this, this incarnation, this humiliation, this glorification of Jesus, the Son of God. But in your relationships with one another Keep this in mind, or some some translations might say, let this be your attitude, the way that you think in relationships. Not just in, in how you think about God, but how you think about everybody that you're in a relationship with your spouse, your children, your friends your neighbors, co-workers. We have multiple relationships in all of our lives. So what does the humbling of Jesus coming from the Godhead and dying and then rising again and being glorified, what does that have to do with your relationships? First of all, there's authority involved. We are should strive to have jesus like authority. authority can be an intimidating word because too often authority is used in oppressive ways, and probably all of us could tell stories, and some of them perhaps even even very very sad stories if you 're willing to talk about the, how authority has has overridden your life or oppressed you in some way, at at whatever level. But that's not Jesus-like authority. So here's Jesus who has the authority as part of the eternal Godhead coming onto earth. And he didn't step onto earth and say, All right, here I am, everybody. Worship me. Come on, bring it on. Let's go. No, he just humbly went about his business and loved people and helped people. And, and, he, and he called out oppression. He called out the, the Roman Empire sometimes and, the, and the, the, the scandal of his own people, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the leaders and, and, and when, when they were just abusing the law of Moses. And he did do that, but he never insisted on being worshiped. He just showed a way of love, showed a way of, Our worthiness is found in relationship with God. Therefore, our relationships need to align with the way of God. So in whatever way that I have authority, am I being Jesus-like? Moms and dads, are we looking down upon our children and just saying, Well, I'm the parent and you better listen. Have I ever said that? Okay. Maybe not in so many words, but yeah, I mean, it's there. You you get frustrated. These children, they come with their own wills. Oh! (laughs) They come with their own ways. And if we're honest, moms and dads, the thing that frustrates us the most about our kids is when they begin to fall and fail in the same ways that we have fallen and failed. And that, that's, that's an honesty that you have to have with yourself to see that. And that helps you react differently and react better. And to have a Christ-like response in that authority structure. Um, but other, other forms of authority. Um, if you are a boss or, or just at, at some level at, at your job, if you have people that are, that are under you, that you are teaching or training, you're responsible for. How are you instilling that authority structure? Is it a Christ-like way? Look at how Jesus, who was in authority over the 12 disciples, how did he lead them? He led them by by a way of love. He led them by, um, by showing them what to do, not just telling them. Did he get frustrated with them? Yes, frequently. Those those twelve guys, there too. All right, Jesus, you went through all of this anyway. I get it. You're trying to be humble on the earth. But go ahead and pick the best and the brightest people on the world in the world to be your apostles. No, he picked some klutzy fishermen. He picked a guy named Peter to lead the whole group when he left, and this guy had foot in the mouth disease. He just said something stupid, and he'd take his foot out of his mouth and put the other one in. He just did that repeatedly, and yet Jesus saw something in that man. No, this man 's got leader, yeah, he 's kind of impulsive, yeah, he, he reacts and overreacts too quickly, but boy we 're going to work on that, and eventually he 's going to make a great leader, and he saw that in him, and if you if you 're a leader in your life, in any sense you know in in your job then Sometimes people get frustrating to you. Well, hang in there and lead them by example. And, and, and by the way, pray for them. They don't have to know you're praying for them. If they're not a believer, fine. Pray for them anyway. You don't have to get permission. What about um, empathy? This comes especially with, with, with parents. We, and, and really with a boss or any other situation where, where you were looking to that person that you are in authority over and saying, Yeah, I remember what it was like to be where you're at. So moms and dads, your eight-year-old is driving you nuts, or more likely your 14-year-old, all right? (laughs) Remember what it was like to be 14. And even if your memories of your childhood, your adolescent years, if they are pain-filled, well, the question is, why were they pain-filled? Not the specifics so much, and that can be very hard for a lot of people, and I certainly acknowledge that. But at at the very basic level, childhood is a condition of powerlessness. You ever think about that? A baby is born, and he's beautiful, but he can't feed himself. He can't Make sure that he takes care of himself, wash himself. He can't do much of anything yet except look cute and adorable, and he does that really well. See, he's powerless, and we all start there. And, 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 and building children, grow, helping lead children, is a process of helping them understand the power that they have step by step. And then hopefully, Lord willing, one day they're going to leave the nest and they're ready to be that adult in a responsible and loving way in the world. And if God blesses them with a child, they'll do the same. But empathy means that I remember what it was like when my eight-year-old frustrated me to be eight. And it, it helps us calm the anger a little bit, the frustration with them. Remember, they are powerless and they completely depend on you. And then humility. Jesus-like humility. It's not about me. A couple of weeks ago, I, that was the title of the sermon. It, 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 it's about we. It's all about we, not me. And this is true in our relationships as well. If your friendship is based upon what your friend can give to you, what they provide for you, how they make you feel, and it's all completely one-sided, that's not a very healthy friendship. And if you have a friend that is sort of taking that from you, then step aside for a moment and start showing some humility toward them. Ask them what they need, ask them how they are. Not just making it about your troubles, Friendship is supposed to be reciprocal, right? It's supposed to be, I'm going to help you. When you're in need, you're going to help me. And in the, in the middle there, we're going to enjoy life together. We're going to enjoy experiences. We're, we're going to do things that, that make this life somehow more worthwhile because there's people like you in this world and you're my friend. That takes humility. It takes humility, again, going back to the parent model, the parent authority to say to your child when you messed up, that is one of the most important things of pairing. I cannot overstress that, parents. When you mess up, be honest with your son or daughter about it, cool off, say, you know what? I flew off the handle there and I shouldn't have done that. Now, what they did is still wrong that made you angry, but your wrong didn't make their wrong okay. It, 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 their wrong doesn't make yours okay. So when we, when we mess up as parents, that act of humility really says something to the child about about proper authority and about forgiveness and about humility. And then lastly, there is forgiveness, which is is what this, this emptying of the Christ accomplished. It was forgiveness for us all. And as it says in the Lord's Prayer, which we will say in our prayer time in a few moments, We are to, we ask God to forgive us and then forgive others. It is a flow through experience. It's not just meant, oh, thank you, Jesus. You died on the cross. You forgave me. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Amen. That's great. It is great. It's wonderful. Pass it on. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And this is also an authority. Situation like in a friendship, you don't generally have one in authority over the other, it's, it's a common bond that you have. But when there is an offense in any relationship, authority steps in because the person who was offended has the, the challenge and the blessing of extending forgiveness. In other words, you have some power. Because you're offended. What will you do with that power? Will you divide and never speak to that person again? Or even worse? Will you try to enact vengeance or retribution upon them because of their offense? See, that's power. It's not the right execution of that power, but it is power. So we have the power to forgive. We have the power to say to them, That really hurt me, and I forgive you. And that's not easy. And sometimes forgiveness, in in especially very abusive situations, isn't even appropriate to go to that person. So Jesus talks about forgiving from the heart, which is really what matters the most, by the way. If you just say the words, how many times we ask our kids, say you're sorry! And you get this, I'm sorry I did that. So forgiveness isn't about just saying it. It's got to be right here. And you know you messed up and, or, or it, when you're extending forgiveness, they really hurt you and it really does hurt. And it hurts deeply. It did a lot of things in your life. But when you choose to forgive that person from here, that begins your healing. And if you're able to say that to that person, if it's appropriate for you to say to that person, okay. But sometimes women in very abusive marriages, that's that's not possible nor even safe. Okay? But from the heart, they can still do that. Another reason that's important is you can even forgive someone who's no longer alive. Anyone in your life passed away and there was this unresolved situation? Forgiveness is still available to you to, in your heart, forgive them. And I, I, I know people that have done exactly this. They get to that place where you wish you had said something to them and maybe they died quickly or you, you just you delayed it for years and years or, or you never talked to them and then they died. And... So when they get to that place where you're, you're forgiving from your heart, then I've seen them like go to their graveside and say that. Maybe some of you have done that. And none of this is easy, by the way, but this is all part of relationships and authority, and the structure that Jesus didn't just do this to show us, wow, Jesus, yay, you came into the world and died for us and rose again. We praise you. No, it's that so we can learn that we have to die to ourselves. So we can learn we have to enter into humility. And, and uh, Peter wrote about Jesus entering into, into hell after he died in, in those three days between his death and resurrection. Now, why did he do that? Because nothing separates us from the love of God. Nothing. He even says that in Romans. Heaven and hell. People still have to choose it, but Jesus goes all the way into not just the, the eternal hell, but the hells of this world. Jesus goes into our deepest, darkest moment and says, I'm here, and I love you. I'm here, I'm sorry that this hurt. I'm here, I'm sorry that you did this. I know you're sorry that you did this, but I don't stop loving you because I see it. The most courageous act of faith is to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me even when I did that thing. Even when I said that hurtful word and you carry that pain with you and you don't have to. All of this is contained in Philippians. So let me wrap it up with this. In all of your relationships, is Christ truly above all? Is that your goal? Is that your desire? Is that what you're striving for? To have to have Jesus lead not just your life and your salvation, but is Jesus in your marriage? Is Jesus in your with your kids? Is Jesus at your job? Is Jesus you know, in your friendships? And the answer is yes, because he's with you. The question is, are you acknowledging his presence there? And are you, are you letting Him his ways supersede your own instincts, your own selfish desires in your relationships? That's the goal of this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that we looked at this morning. And I pray that a seed will be planted in everyone's heart this morning about something that was revealed from from these scriptures and something that that through you, Lord, you said through me that, that will be helpful, that will be challenging, inspiring, maybe an awakening, maybe something that needs to happen in a relationship. Plant that seed in all the hearts this morning, Lord Jesus and let it grow into an action for you that will glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Kim's going to come right now, and we're going to sing, and then we're going to go into um, a time of prayer. Our song of worship this morning is Christ is enough.